0: Welcome
1: to the Catherine Zock Show. I'm Catherine Zock, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to the Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. You can listen to us every Wednesdays live, 10 to 11 Eastern Time, and uh, we archive the show at the end of the day, so uh, then you can download it on MP3 or iTunes, and you're good to go for the rest of the year. I have two guests coming up this morning, both authors. Uh, my first guest is here with me now. She's Lisa McCord, author of Juicy Joy. Seven Simple Steps into Your Glorious, Gusty Self. And who doesn't want to be their glorious, gusty self? I know I do. Uh, but specifically, she's going to tell us about the one rare flavor of love that transforms everything. So if you want to find out what that one rare... Rare, rare flavor of love, which transforms everything. You'll have to listen to the show, um, and we'll be talking to her in a few minutes. Uh, my second guest is Diane Ackerman. Maybe you knew Diane. She, uh, Diane Ackerman, she's an author uh, who wrote um, *The Zookeeper's Wife*, which was on the best New York Times best-selling list for many, many weeks. I read that. Uh, Uh, several years ago, but her new book is 100 Names for Love, 100 Names for Love. This is a memoir. This is a personal story about grief and loss and the way it used to be. So uh, stay tuned, and and we'll be talking to uh, Diane in the second part of the show. But first, uh, we have Lisa McCourt, author of Juicy Joy, Seven Simple Steps into Your Glorious, Gusty Self. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you, Catherine. I'm thrilled to be on with you. Good. Are you your glorious, gusty self this morning? I am, I am, and I have to say it's not every morning that I am. <laughs> almost every morning. You wrote the book, so it better be almost every morning, because we want to hear all your secrets about how you keep glorious and gusty. But the real thing is, you said, and I guess it was kind of you had, and I call them epiphanies, you said like a bolt of lightning, suddenly you've written many, many books, children's books, but now this particular book is a book for grown-ups, it's for us. And uh, you you had this, this kind of this moment, and I called it an epiphany, uh, and you say that the, the love that transforms everything is really what makes us tick. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning because what is it? What is the love that transforms everything?
3: It's self-love. It's love of self. And I always package it together with authenticity. And those two words, Catherine, they've just become so vanilla. They get so glossed over like authenticity, self-love. They sound so trite, so cliche. You ask people, you know, are you authentic? Do you love yourself? Yeah, everybody thinks they're authentic. Everybody loves themselves. But it really, there always are shades of gray when it comes to these two, these two particular ways of looking at yourself and your place in the world and really examining that, taking apart you know where in our lives we are authentic and where we may not be being so authentic and where we're loving ourselves and where we're not. When people start looking at it, it's huge and eye-opening, and it literally does transform everything. When you take the simple little steps to start being more of who you authentically are at your core and really learning to just love and adore who you are at your core, It opens every door
1: that you've been knocking against. Uh, Lisa, you say that one of the things is that a lot of people talk about that. Coaches, social workers, therapists, find your true self, find your authentic self, uh, love yourself. Is your book special because it teaches us exactly how to do that? Uh, and, And it's different than, let's say... You know, as you just said, all these other books or all these other professionals who espouse to help you find yourself, your true self?
3: Well, I am a huge self-dev junkie. I have been just loving this industry my whole life. I read my first Wayne Dyer book at 14. I've been hooked ever since. So I certainly would not knock anyone else who is teaching you to be authentic and love yourself. But what I found is that in my journey in doing this, I was gathering up all these tools, all these really valuable insights and information and and techniques, and I was only applying them to... This persona that I had created that I was calling me, and it's so common in my workshops. I mean, everybody just has that moment where they click in and and relate to this, that no matter what tools you've learned or what programs you've taken or books you've gone through, when you're still applying it to the you that you've constructed, which is an illusion, it's not going to really have the effect that you want. It's not going to really take you to that next level that you want to to accomplish. So what I've really done with Juicy Joy is just like a, a golden nugget distillation of the very most effective practices that I've gathered along the way, the, the one little tweak that would make the most difference and put them into these seven steps so that it, it does work chronologically you do the first one and then it builds upon itself and it just takes you to that that next level of authenticity
1: in a kind of streamlined efficient way (laughs) now you talk specifically about women and i think that's an issue in terms of self-love i want to talk to you about that because you know self-love maybe particularly for women and i'm um self-love is always something that they say well if you love yourself too much then you're just selfish and there's a real difference between self-love and selfish yeah
3: I think that um, self people who are afraid that oh if I love myself too much I'm going to become egotistical or, or show off or braggart really all of those behaviors they they come from a place of not loving yourself when we're out there being, a, you know, trying to show the world who we are in a loud way, it's always a cover-up. It's like I've constructed this persona and it's very, very important to me that everybody see me as this persona, so I'm going to be really loud about that and make sure everybody knows this is who I am, this is who I am, as a distraction from who you really are. When you get to the point of true self-love, truly knowing and loving who you are, you can't help but love everyone else. I mean, we're all connected to that whole. We all have all of it in us, and true self-love is not a dividing um, trait. It, it's actually much more of a connecting trait. When you, Until you really truly love yourself, you can't appreciate and love other people.
1: So how do you do that? How do you specifically do that? In terms of give us an example, a, some, give yourself as an example or someone you've worked with or I know you have your own radio show, people you talk to, give us an example how someone can develop this self-love so that they can become the authentic person that's going to help them uh, do well in the world, i.e. connections with family, friends, you know, being, as you say, connected in a, in a positive way to, to those around them.
3: There are seven different steps I'm I'm thinking about which would be the best to share with you. Getting in touch with your feelings, I think, is a, a good, really, first step because we're so taught to push away the feelings that we don't like. You know, some of us who have subscribed to the law of attraction, oh, my gosh, I'm having a negative thought, a negative emotion, you know, get it out of there, push it away, push it away, or I'm going to attract more negative things to me. Um, Or just I'm feeling anger and anger isn't ladylike or anger isn't something I want to feel, so you push that away. And all of that, your emotions are you. Your emotions are the the clearest indicator of who you are, that and your desires. So anytime you deny any emotion or deny any desire, Desire, you're denying your basic core self so there are exercises you know you can do a really simple trick is just throughout the day every time you look at a clock and you want to set the intention in the morning of this being at least once an hour but for most people it, <clears throat> excuse me it's easiest just to whenever you look at a clock let that be your trigger you want to stop and just ask yourself what am I feeling right now And notice the default tendency to push away negative feelings or the feelings that we don't want to look at or feel, but invite them in instead. Just invite them up, bring them up into your consciousness, ask the the feeling what it's there to teach you, what it's telling you that you need to know, because feelings and emotions that we, we feel are always some important message for us. And there's, you know, little ways we have of of decoding the message, too, that we teach in the training. And then once you've gotten clear on that feeling and you've embraced it and let it in, the next step is just to say, what would I like to be feeling What would be the emotion I'd most really like to have right now? And let your imagination go to that, to the point that you can actually almost feel the chemical change in your
1: body by imagining this so vividly. I want to stop you because I think that's a. I'm glad you brought you brought that example up because I'm thinking specifically with women. And here's an example: like you're at work and many of us, and uh, my kids are grown up, but there are so many women who are working at home and then working in the workplace outside of the home, and let's say they're sitting in their office, and the, the, the feeling that comes up, I feel so guilty because I'm here and my kids are home with the babysitter and I'm not with them, and I feel really guilty, but I'm at work, I'm supposed to be producing, I'm sitting here in my office. How do you wrestle with that? Mm, yeah, that's beautiful and such a common example.
3: I think that, you know, it's okay to, to first of all, just say, okay, I am feeling guilty. I do feel guilty about this. I do feel bad about this. But everything that we create in our lives is always a mirror of how we're feeling about ourselves. So if we've created a situation where we're going to a job that, I don't know, maybe we do enjoy, it maybe we don't. If we're feeling guilty sitting there, you know, about it, then maybe it's a job we're not enjoying so much. Whatever the situation is that you've created, it's always a crystal clear snapshot of how you're feeling about yourself and what you're believing about yourself in the world. So if you have a belief that I would rather be home with my child but I have to be here at work, that belief is going to create your reality. And so it's really working with the, the facts around it and pulling it all out and doing some napping and some grappling, and seeing why you have that belief and shifting the belief because once you shift that and maybe the belief is that my child needs me at home and I'm doing a bad thing and you just have to you know, get rid of that belief if you really do enjoy your job and you want to be at your job. Or maybe it's just that it's a survival belief about, I'm not going to have the money I need to survive unless I work when I really would rather be home. Whatever they are, there's a lot of different factors in place. But getting clear on what you believe and how that's creating your reality allows you to start to shift the reality to something that
1: you can be more comfortable with. And see, I see how that now fits into your authentic self because I think – the tendency is you're sitting there feeling guilty, and you push it away, and you make excuses for it, and you don't want to accept. I think, is this what you're saying? I don't want to accept that feeling, so I just kind of pretend that, you know, I have a great babysitter, uh, whatever it is. You make excuses, and maybe in social work we call it, you know, these kind of defense mechanisms pop up, but you really have to address it. You have to address it. You have to feel it, and then you have to change the belief. Is that what you're saying?
3: Absolutely, because I think so many
1: of us get like caught up in those little circles in our head where we know the dialogue that we're
3: supposed to say. It's a great babysitter, and this is, and and we just like spend that dialogue over and over, but that doesn't get us anywhere. It doesn't really address the issue. You have to say it's okay that I'm feeling this. I'm feeling it, so I'm going to own it. I'm going to embrace the feeling. It's here to teach me something. What is it here to teach
1: me? It's difficult to do that. I mean, especially if you are the only life one doing it, you know, because I tend to do that, I think, within the context of my own family. but And my family knows, and they've heard me say this on the radio a lot, Lisa, but I, I, I my label has always been the troublemaker because it always seems to me I want to address some of the, you know, I'm a social worker. I was trained in, in, in some of this, not all of it, but so I am always trying to, and I think particularly as I get older, kind of latch on to those feelings that maybe are uncomfortable and then I want to talk about them and I want to share them. Is that okay too? But Because then my family sometimes does not. Why do you always want to talk about that stuff? Just forget about it, you know, if it's something that's negative. Well,
3: yeah, I think that our society trains us not to look at it. You know, even though they have a great influence right there at home saying, yes, we should pull this up, we should look at it, there's so much influence not to look at it. And I think that it's it becomes a matter of really making sure to complete the cycle every time with them and show them that, yes, by pulling it up, we're not just going to pull it up, stir up a bunch of muck and leave it there on the table. We're going to pull it up so that we can clear it up. We're going to get to what we want to feel from this. This is what we're feeling, and we're not liking that. So what is it that we want to feel and really put all of our tension and emphasis on what we want to feel and that will just start to open up those pathways to get from a to b and then once you have a few pathways open and you see where it's how it's going to get you there it becomes you let the passion and excitement about getting to point b be the driving force not the the negativity of wanting to get out of point a because when you're just focused on the the muck then you can't really create anything but more muck so you have to put all the focus on where you want to
1: be and let that
3: that passion and that joy be the the compelling force
1: and then we are going into the direction or taking the path to our authentic self what's that going to do for us what, what is it going to do for us ultimately i mean obviously you you've That's what we've been talking about, but once we are able to address, as you say, those emotions, negative emotions, do something about them, change our belief system, uh, and and not deny what we're feeling, and that leads us on the path to our authentic self, once, do we just, do we reach our authentic self, or is it always evolving, and then what happens to us?
3: I feel like it's always evolving, <laughs> thankfully. You know, you would never want to actually be there. You want it to be a journey. You want it to always be evolving. But what it, what people hope that I'm going to say and what people often will, like, sign up for Juicy Joy training for, they want me to say then we become these powerful manifestors and we manifest everything we've ever wanted in our lives. And that's actually true. Manifestation isn't terribly difficult. We actually can from our authentic core, begin manifesting the things that we want. But it's really not the point because none of us really knows what we really want. Okay, we have these ideas we think we know, you know, if I had that job or that relationship or that whatever it is. And you can get it, but there's always going to be something else that you want. So it's really the the goal that to me makes the most sense that I feel like should be the, the carrot to dangle is that you get to the point where you're just, blissfully comfortable in your own skin all the time no matter what comes up, no matter what challenges, because there are always going to be challenges. No no amount of authenticity or self-love is going to make you immune to, you know, things coming up in your life that you'd rather didn't come up. The challenges are how we grow and evolve, and the contrast is what actually keeps life real and rich and exciting for us. So we're always going to have those challenges. But just to to lose that default setting that we're programmed with to panic every time something goes wrong and to start struggling against it and resisting it instead, just to know we have the inner strength and the resources and the divine assistance that this is just another obstacle, another challenge that's going to propel us to even a greater place of joy and freedom. So let's embrace it. Let's welcome it. Let's figure out what its gift is. Let's thank the universe for the gift sooner rather than later so that we can move past it, move on to the next green pasture. And, and just that should be the carrot is just that ability to be, comfortable all the time with who you are it's like you you have your best friend with you you know somebody that you just deeply passionately love and that that person is right with you no matter what's going on it makes the whole thing sweet and fun and that best friend can be you
1: it's sort of like when you and i think women traditionally do this, if you're feeling bad or you have some major issue, you're struggling with you call your girlfriend, because you know you're going to get some kind of, you'll get empathy, you'll get somebody who's on your side or on your team, and and it feels good, like you say. But, uh, you know, when you're talking about this, addressing these feelings and changing your beliefs and seeking authenticity, I would imagine that it helps not only your head, but your body, because if you're always wrestling with this stuff or trying to push these negative emotions away, you get high blood pressure you have, I, I think your, your immune system reacts to that in a negative way and so that like you, you, it, this is kind of a way of calming yourself down both physically and emotionally so that, you can, so that you can deal with all of these. This There's a lot of negativity out there or a lot of things that just happen to us that we have no control over, but ha- it's how we handle them is what you're saying. And this, this, these seven steps that you've developed will help us to become more authentic the more authentic you are, the easier it is to deal with all the stuff that we have to deal with. Absolutely. I and call you're it right stuff. About I don't our... know what to call it. The what? I said I always call it stuff. I don't know what to call it, but stuff <laughs> happens.
3: I call it the muck. The muck I off muck. to trudge through. <laughs> the muck but you're and so the right stuff. about our health, and and we get addicted to those stress hormones. That's the the sad thing. It's like we're we're taught to live in survival mode, and in survival mode, it's a fear based society. It's a fear based reality. So any time anything happens, that sort of just pricks us, just ticks us off, we go into that stress hormone, and our body actually becomes addicted to our reactive patterns, addictive to those stress chemicals, and it's a matter of breaking those addictions with putting better habits in place and and just keep choosing, just keep, you know, okay, my default is that way, i got to switch over, go this way, switch over, go this way, until we rewrite the neural pathways in our neocortex, right, because everything that we've done and every habit that we've had has created real little brain bits in our, our neocortex that we have to start rewiring and it is over repetition you get to to change the body chemicals and, and lessen that addiction to the stress chemicals. And you're absolutely right that it affects every aspect of our, our health and our well being.
1: And I assume that where you practice what you preach that it has done that for you, that you've noticed, you know, once you had this kind of uh, lightning bolt as you say and you realized, hey, this is what I need to do. This is what I need to teach other people to do. Uh, it really worked for you, and over how long a period of time?
3: Oh my gosh, I'm such a work in progress. I, I'm nowhere near done, but I do know that the practices work and that they do work pretty quickly when you apply them regularly. I would say, you know, from the time I started the specific Lucy Joy steps, about four years. I was doing personal development prior to that, but once I you know, really wove them into this particular framework about four years. And, and the, the biggest difference, I think, is just really knowing that I'm okay whether anyone approves of me or not, which might sound completely mundane to anyone who hasn't struggled with a people-pleasing addiction like I have and, and many, many of us actually do. But it's that realization that, all the I'm driven by connection and I think a lot of a lot of women are driven by the the desire for connection to make really deep, meaningful connections with those around us. It's sort of a, a human trait and particularly a female trait. And just to know so clearly now that in my emotional immaturity Everything I was doing to foster connection was actually counterproductive to true connection. I would just become exactly what the person in front of me wanted me to be, no matter if it was a boss or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or, you know, a family member. Whatever this person looked at me to provide for them, I was like a chameleon. I could immediately become that. And it was all sort of subconscious from my early programming. It wasn't something I did consciously. But when you do that, you know deep down that you're doing it. And then if that person does offer you any sort of love or affection or accolades, it can't ever really land because you know deep down that it's contingent upon you keeping up this persona that you've created in order to get that person's attention or admiration. So you never really feel fortified by, you know, anyone else's love or connection. And it's only by stopping doing that, just being who you authentically are for some people to admire and love and others to not give a ask it out, then that's when real connection can happen
1: because you are just showing them who you really are and it invites other people to show you who they really are as well. I think uh, that what happens is if you, become, you use so much energy being a people pleaser, it takes a lot of energy, you do it, at the, in the moment and I know for myself also and I think it has to do a lot with our training as women growing up um, and then I'll go home and I'll think why did I, I, I spend then more energy and more time why did I say that I mean I really didn't want to say that I wanted to say something that perhaps was more authentic and reflected my true feelings where am I going with this it's making me uncomfortable it's not working I'm using a lot of energy so it, what you say really fits in I know into my situation um, and I, and I do think that it is kind of gender-related for some reason, not sure why, but I think it's something that women really have to take a look at. That's why they need to read your book, and I'm going to mention the book again, at Juicy Joy, Seven Simple Steps into Your Glorious, Gusty Self, and it's Lisa McCourt we're talking to right now. Lisa, where can we, uh, you just mentioned, or you mentioned earlier in the show that you do uh, workshops around the country, uh, you know, and obviously you've written lots of books, children's books, this book, uh, tell us how we can connect. Connections are important, how we can connect with you um, online and uh, also perhaps, I guess, in person where you do your workshops.
3: Oh, great. Thank you. Yes, juicyjoy.com. JuicyJoy.com. You can buy the book from there, and I have a lot of partners in the industry who are, you know, giving all kinds of gifts and, and giveaways when you buy the book from JuicyJoy.com. So you'll see a whole page of that, and also you can join Club Real from from that page from JuicyJoy.com. Club Real is my most um, the, the the program I'm putting the most energy into right now is an online community, and it's for people who are reading the book or just people who are curious about authenticity and self-love and even if they're not reading the book. And we do weekly calls, and we have guest gurus on who come and give us like just fabulous information and resources. And it's just really uh not so much a program because i find that people are just so busy and stressed right now that the the programs that i used to teach i used to give a lot of homework and it was very time consuming and i, I feel like i want to give the world a little bit of a break and it's really a, a go at your own pace resource that's there there are tons of downloads there are like two dozen um juicy deals or what i call my guided meditations but you can put them on your iphone or your portable device and do them anywhere anytime and they have subliminal self-love messages embedded by Eldon Taylor, who's just the king of cutting-edge subliminal technology, and he put these self-love messages on there
1: for me. How does that work? How does subliminal, I only know subliminal from the movies when you go in and they say they have subliminal (laughs) advertising for all the, you know, soft drinks and stuff that's bad for you.
3: I know it's weird. A lot of people do have a a sort of a weary connotation to that word. But um, Eldon Taylor, you should look him up. He's amazing. He's done all kinds of, you know, university studies have been done on his work, and they use his audios in prison systems, actually, for rehabilitation. But it's just, like, nature sounds that if you listen really, really carefully, you can hear very faintly these, you know, I love myself, I am, you know, whatever they are, but just very empowering self-love messages that, like my voice, uh, telling what the, the meditation is, the guided meditation you hear clearly and articulately, and you can follow the meditation I'm taking you on. But there's also these, like, self-love uh, messages embedded into the soundtrack that go to work on your subconscious programming so that your conscious mind's going on one journey and your subconscious is getting a boost, too. And they really do just make you feel amazing. I mean, people report that. It's, and it's part of that rewiring the brain chemistry. It's like we have all these messages telling us how horrible we are all day, you know, and how we don't measure up from all the advertising and just everything that we are subjected to. So it counterbalances that. It, it gives your, your brain a nice wash of, of feel-good chemicals and, and loving-yourself chemicals.
1: Yeah, we need that, and especially you're doing this on the net, which I find amazing because it's true. I mean, I, uh, the, the net makes me, although it gives me a lot of information, obviously, but then it makes me feel nervous about, like, I'm not doing this. I'm not working hard enough. I haven't made enough money. I'm not pretty enough. I to look at all this stuff that everybody else is doing. Here, the stuff comes yeah. up again. And I am so nervous and anxious. I want to turn the thing off. But right. <laughs> this is the counterbalance to that. Club real? Club real? Is that what it is? Club Reel, yeah, but you can find it at JuicyJoy.com. JuicyJoy.com. And uh, what a pleasure to talk to you today. This is, like, really interesting. Um, I, have we given enough information in terms of where people can uh, turn to if they want to? Well, they can buy the book online, bookstores everywhere. And uh, you can go to Club Reel. And just, you know, you, who was it you just mentioned again who does this subliminal advertising? What's his name? Because I, I find that people might want to find out yeah. more about Eldon Taylor. Eldon Taylor, right. His, um, Inner Talk technology is the patented
3: system that, um, that he uses, well, that's, that he invented. InnerTalk technology. And it's been a lot of double-blind university studies to show how, over time, listening to these CDs, and you can buy his CDs without, you know, My Juicy Fills on it at InnerTalk, and they have them for everything, for stopping smoking and losing weight and sleeping better and anxiety and you just and they have, have music soundtracks behind some of them and nature sounds behind some of them and and they just sort of start to
1: reprogram your brain wiring fantastic great having you on the show today i uh, i'm going to be i will begin you know as i have have having read your book but uh, continuing to always tune into my authentic self cuz i do think that's really It is key, especially today and especially for us women. So Juicy Joy, seven simple steps into your glorious, gusty self. Lisa McCourt, have a great day. Thanks. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks for being such a good resource. Thank you. Uh, We have a second guest coming up in the second half hour, Diane Ackerman. Diane's new book is called 100 Names for Love. This is a memoir. This is a very personal story because uh, many of you, I am sure, have read her book, The Zookeeper's Wife uh which I, as i said before in the early part of the show i had i've read uh, several years ago uh and she's also the best selling author of a natural history of the senses so uh she and lives in uh, upstate new york in ithaca new york uh don't go away we'll be back in a minute with diane ackerman i'm katherine Zox. i'm your social worker with the microphone and you are listening to the katherine Zox show on voiceamericavariety.com and world talk radio we'll be back in a minute
0: in real estate stocks annuities and other investment vehicles that's the money answer show with jordan goodman on the voice america business channel every monday at 12 p.m pacific standard time if you're a golf enthusiast and looking for some great golf properties in the desert southwest you'll want to make the golf realty network your weekly stop hosted by jane and al anderson the golf realty network is all about living where you play on the golf side You'll hear from the course pros and vendors, while the real estate side will bring you the top agents and brokers who know how to market or find your golf community home. Tune in to the Golf Realty Network, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety, and rebroadcast weekly on Voice America Sports. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
1: We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on com and World Talk Radio. You can listen to us live every Wednesday uh, from 10 to 11 Eastern Time, and then at the end of the day, we archive the show, and you can uh, download it on your MP3 or iTunes or however you want to do it. My second guest today is Diane Ackerman. Diane Ackerman is author of 100 Names for Love. Uh, I actually first was introduced to diane not personally but when i read her book the zookeeper's wife which has just been that book was just one of the books that has had a profound influence on me because i was in warsaw poland at the time and that's what the book is about the zookeeper's wife in poland during world war ii and i bought it there but so i was really excited when uh, you know she came out with this new book one hundred names for love is a memoir a personal story uh... it's about her relationship and her i, I They loss and love and grief and all kinds of things when her uh, husband, uh, Paul West, a gifted writer um, had 40 years, I guess, um, had a stroke, and uh, the book is all about that. It's a memoir about their relationship, his recovery, and their recovery as a couple. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Diane. Thank you. It's a joy to be with you. Yeah, I just have to say, we're going to talk about this book, but I truly mean that. I was in Warsaw. I bought your book, The Zookeeper's Wife. I talk about it all the time.
2: Oh, thank you so much. I think
1: very few of my readers
2: know that I actually wrote The Zookeeper's Wife after the events of uh, this new book were unfolding. It really was my sanctuary in in many ways. And in retrospect, I don't think it was a coincidence that I would be attracted to a woman who was a much better caregiver than I could ever hope to be at the time that I was being a caregiver, and also someone from the land of my ancestors. Someone who had a mystical relationship with animals and nature made a lot of sense.
1: So all those connections, you never know how it happens. But um, And this book also, I mean, obviously this is a very personal story. This is your story with your husband. You were uh, a, a graduate student when you met your husband. He was a professor. And you had this fabulous kind of love relationship, uh, no children between you. So you two were just totally connected to each other all the time. I loved your uh, description of your relationship in your early years, and then he has a stroke, and then everything changes. So well, let's begin with that.
2: Well, yes, that's true. Uh, when we met, he was uh, a, a British professor, 20 years older, um, already publishing a great deal, and uh, I was a student of his. And then, um, in some semesters afterwards, we kept bumping into each other, and on our first real date, I went to his house for drinks, and we stayed up talking nonstop until dawn. And I just stayed for forty years. That's that's what happened. And that's we, the story. Our lives were drenched in language and in wordplay, and best of all, he would make up uh, little operettas about me as he would walk through the house every day. He was extremely eccentric. And I had a lot of fun writing about his eccentricities early on in the book. They came naturally to him. I don't think they were self-conscious. He would be afraid to be in the presence of fresh fruit and vegetables. And um, he didn't like space over him. On at least one occasion, he flew home to England sitting on a ream of typing paper to soften it up, he said.
1: He um, didn't like weather. (laughs) <laughs> at all and and you were you were not a flower child, but you were a child of the the sixties, I think, or I was a
2: flower child of the seventies, I really 70s. was
1: yeah uh, so and we came from
2: totally different backgrounds. He grew up in an english working class village where his dad was a coal miner, and he was one of those kids who got a scholarship to Oxford and could never really go home again. He was just so smart, and he went from there to the uh, RAF, where he, his job was to lecture on giving good lectures, and then he became a professor. So his whole life was language. I grew up in the Beatles era. My dad had one of the first McDonald's. We were from completely different cultures, and on one occasion, when we gave a joint reading in the Midwest, our host even introduced us to the audience as two people who have nothing whatsoever in common.
1: And I I think what you had, that nothing whatsoever in common, I mean, to me it seems like you had such different things to bring to the relationship, but the one thing you did have in common, as you say, was a love of words, and you're both authors, and you're both brilliant, and that stuff is what holds you together, and the other stuff makes it a lot more interesting because you have all these differences, including age. Well, I think that's absolutely right, and isn't that the truth for all relationships?
2: With any luck, you're bringing different things to the table, but you share underlying important things in common. so Paul and I both were uh, incredibly silly and playful, endlessly playful, and we were really nonstop uh, affectionites. Um, And so there really, there were just a lot of things. Diane,
1: do you think that because... You didn't have children. I mean, I have three children, and I adore my children. But children in a relationship can be distracting, and be, and I always wonder because you had all this great, all this, uh, you know, things that you shared and art and music and all those kinds of things. But you also there was like a at least in the book it seems like a, a sensuality to your relationship, and I think maybe you had that because you didn't have to deal with kids. With children. I know this may not be a popular thing to say, but I am curious about that.
2: No, I agree with you. I think you're quite right. And we used to tease that um, we only stayed together for the sake of the children, each was the other's child. And I think that's very true, that when you don't have that outlet for caregiving and sensuality as you're talking about with kids, then um, you really can apply it to one another if you're of that that state, and I find that that's very true for me now, as well as a caregiver. I mean, caregiving has a lot of uh, drawbacks, but it also has a lot of wonderful elements, and not least is the sheer sensory delight of being able to be fussing over and and handling someone and having this very intimate relationship, physical relationship with them. How um, you, and, okay, I, now
1: I think it's time for us to, like, really... I want to get specific about how did you become a caregiver? What happened? I mean, because everything did change when you became the caregiver in your relationship. It's
2: true. And ironically, I happened to be on a book tour for a book about the brain, uh, An Alchemy of Mind. So when Paul had a stroke, um, I was absolutely the worst or the best person to have a spouse with a stroke because I knew in chilling detail what had happened. But I also knew what was possible. And that was very important. He had a stroke that, in the cruelest of ironies, only wiped out the language areas of his brain. And he could no longer say anything whatsoever except the syllable mem. That was it. But I knew, I mean, needless to say, my whole world just collapsed. And I felt completely abandoned. And I remember that I heard all over my body but in no place I could point to. And now we know. Just recently, we know from neuroscience studies that that kind of pain, relationship pain, is experienced in the brain the same way you experience a broken leg or an injured uh, arm or stomach. It's it's experienced as physical pain, and that is what I was going through. And that's why we say that love can hurt, and so on, or that we feel crushed. And I certainly felt those things. But well, are you saying, Diane,
1: when you're talking about how the brain responds, this is interesting, you, uh, to grief and loss, I guess, initially, I don't know, do you experience the loss right away? It, it, I think as you described it in the book, it's kind of like, the, you, know, um, when, you know, when someone dies, how you go through the different stages of, of anger and grief and acceptance, and it happened to you kind of in a similar way uh, when Paul had his stroke. Yes, it did,
2: only the odd thing was having to mourn for someone who was still alive. That was quite new. I didn't know how to do that. It took a while, and when we left the hospital, you know, people just, the the doctors and the nurses and everyone, they just said goodbye and good luck. No one gave any advice on what to do or what's normal to feel or what you might try, anything like that, or let alone how to reestablish Uh, your loving relationship when you've had a crisis in the relationship. And I don't even think it needs to be illness, although I suppose the book is about love in the time of illness, but really it's any big crisis. And I, one thing I knew was that um, the brain has an enormous capacity for healing, but it requires ingenuity and it requires repetition. And uh, I just took over his... Speech therapy at a certain point because of uh, different things that weren't working and started making up my own and I immediately started thinking how on earth can I restore the everydayness of things in our relationship
1: and so we so, knew I want to get back to the hospital because as a social worker and and uh, I'm really curious there was because it's so important I mean you're talking about your husband had a stroke. The nursing staff and the doctors say goodbye, you know, and they do send goodbye and good luck. We fixed, you know, we did as much as we can for you physically, so we have nothing else to do. There wasn't anybody there a social worker, anybody part of a team that helped you to at least direct you to resources or to maybe say, I, you know, empathize with what you were going through. Nothing?
2: No. And his prognosis was grim that he would never speak again. We just don't know much about what is possible. Now, in the meantime, I've traveled around the country. I've met some social workers and speech-language people who are very progressive and uh, really are up on things, and thank God for that. But it just happened that in 2004, here in my little town, uh, that just didn't happen. And it was up to me to figure out what I could do. And I think most people in that situation would say, well, even though he can walk and get around fine, I can't cope with him. So best to have him, and I'm scared, uh, best to have him in a nursing home. But, of course, that would be the worst thing uh, when he didn't need to be there yet because the brain needs to be stimulated constantly to get it to
1: repair itself. And you knew that well. You see, so you had had the experience. I mean, you, were uh, at least, uh, I guess, intellectually, you knew all of this. Um, but emotionally, I want to get into the emotions because I keep thinking. And there are so many caregivers today who are faced with different kinds of problems, but physical problems, whether it's Alzheimer's or uh, a lot of, you know, the aging population, and, and are really have to deal with this issue of caregiving, and are feel so isolated and alone and, as you said, terrified, but don't have the same kinds of resources, perhaps, or even the good that you had as an individual, but also in terms of your relationship, because you're coming from a good marriage, you know, somebody that you adored, you adored each other, and um, maybe it's worse, I don't know. Oh, but, but, I, but I do
2: need to say that it wasn't always fun and games.
1: I mean, we also fought at
2: times. And yeah. you can trust a writer to come up with really <laughs> brutal and unusual uh, attack phrases yeah. and stuff. You know, Never. and also Paul was an alcoholic for many years. Yeah. And um, But I think that living with anyone for many years really takes skill, as you know. And if you're going to keep peace in the household, then couples learn to adapt to one another, uh, one hopes, in positive ways. In our case, laughter and humor really helped to put things in perspective and we played that helped a lot uh, with the relationship but um, there's I think if you stay together for any length of time ultimately it's not one relationship it's several
1: You marriages in one I don't you think yeah I do I think if you stay together over a period uh, if you stay together your marriage has to evolve. And so exactly. and, and perhaps the reason for divorce is that people just can't go through that evolution, and they're kind of stuck in the first marriage, Rather, and I mean first marriage with the same person. But, uh, yeah, I think you're right. It does have to be several marriages. Did you ever feel, though, Diane, like, what? how did this happen to me? Angry, mad, like? Absolutely. Yeah. I was furious. I've never been
2: someone who's been good at anger, so I should tell you that to begin <laughs> with. Um, I would rather be depressed than angry, you know, given the choice. But I was angry, and but I knew it wasn't his fault. There's a huge difference between knowing that somebody is doing something that is hurting you out of bad character or doing it accidentally because it's not his fault. Something happened to him. And that really changes things. But I was still angry. And what I needed to do was find a way to be able to nourish myself and to be able to help him as much as possible and to ask for help. That was really important, to get somebody to come in. And usually the state, the county, the local agencies will have somebody who can come in to spell a caregiver for a few hours each day. And during those periods, I would say, okay, I'm going to Poland, everyone. I'm going to be in Poland. Don't bother me. And so then I would walk down the hallway and I'd, I'd be working in my study. Now, I think that this is uh, somewhat like when a parent has kids and has to find little pockets in which to work. I never had that before. Suddenly I had to find attention gulps, you know. <laughs> But I think parents go through this all the time.
1: Yeah, I mean, you had to nourish yourself, and I think that's so true, and I think some of the improved, without getting into it, but I think from a social worker uh, perspective, I mean, now they have respite care during the day, and you can Absolutely. bring, you know, those kinds of things, which are great. Did you ever, though, need to connect with somebody else who had gone through the same thing? When I knew I was going to interview you today, I was thinking I had interviewed Jill Bolt. You, oh, yeah. Yes. I don't her, know if you connected with her or there's any. No,
2: her experience was was really very different, um, because she came at it from the perspective of a, um, we should uh, tell a her medical. Who she is. is. She was. Yeah. yeah. And she had different experiences too. Um, also, Paul's, uh, stroke was more catastrophic than hers. And the odd thing about his. By definition, you can't tell people what it was going through your mind so thoroughly at the time, but he really could later on because it took years, but he now is working on a new book. He will always have aphasia, and we need to appreciate people who have this kind of language problem because hundreds of thousands of young people return from the war with it, um, young people who are in traffic accidents, Uh, Define aphasia
1: for those listeners who don't know what we're talking about when you say aphasia. Just a simple definition of what aphasia aphasia is and how it affects your life. Aphasia, uh, when people have aphasia, they know what they want to say, but
2: they can't get it from the brain to the mouth, essentially, and they will have trouble speaking. Sometimes all the wrong words pour out in some versions of aphasia. So it's a little bit like Tourette's without the cursing. Um, although I suppose they could be cursing too. And sometimes it's just really hard and you're agonizing with them because they're struggling, struggling to get the word out. Um, however, speech therapy can help. And we're now finding that uh, in neuroscience that just holding the hand, imagine this, just holding the hand of your loved one um, helps the brain. Calm down and reapply its attention to learning, to uh, feeling less pain, and so on. Um, the relationship. So simple,
1: touching, 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 and that's touching. the one. It's the one thing that we don't do when we have, uh, and maybe we're forced to. Let's say we have to put a loved one, or a partner, or a parent, whoever, in a in a in an institution or a facility. No one touches you, or you're left alone with you know, uh, you've had a stroke or maybe even a mild one, and you don't have a partner anymore, and no one touches you. And you're just saying that changes everything in the brain so that you're able to to function better if you just get touched or hugged or kissed. Absolutely.
2: Plus, as you you know, and as I wrote about in uh, my New York Times column a few weeks ago. I saw that. That was great. Thank you. Relationships, any relationship, but especially loving relationships, literally physically change the architecture of the brain. They change how the brain is going to expect the world to be, how it's going to feel. So, of course, it's really important with kids, but with everybody, and when somebody is injured, too. So all, I knew this, and so almost at once, I began exploring new ways to communicate with my husband through affection, through gestures, through pantomime. Uh, we made animal sounds. I'm really good at making monkey-baby sounds. <laughs> he want to and, do that for us now. <laughs> You know, you can make sounds that to supplement what you're saying if somebody can't speak. Um, Or just to play, you can make sounds. And um, all of these things, all of these nonverbal behaviors, send very strong messages. We learned to do, to read each other like that before we had language. I mean, as a species. And we're still good at it.
1: What you're talking about is kind of creative communication. We don't have to get stuck in our old ways of communicating. There are all kinds of other ways to communicate, and we have to know what those are in this kind of a situation. Absolutely.
2: Now, it is true that because I'm creative and I have this background in poetry and so on, when he would say these absolutely wild and hilarious things, I found them funny and adorable. And I would encourage him, because if you have somebody with a speaking disorder, sometimes they can say things in a roundabout way, and it can be really funny and fun. So, for example, um, he couldn't think of the word for computer the other day, and he wanted to send an email. So he referred to it as a light dancing mailbox. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. I'd have to work really hard for that phrase, you know.
1: (laughs) That's a very creative
2: phrase, yes. Uh, and very often this happens, or one day I said, why am I so tired today? And he said, um, maybe your mental encyclopedia has been requisitioned by a higher force.
1: <laughs> I said, sure, that'll be it. He meant, but,
2: you, you know, you're, you, you're tired from working with me.
1: Of course, uh, when I hear you say that, and, and uh, he, that sounds like a professor who graduated from Oxford
2: to right. me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing I discovered about Paul, and I think this applies to people across the board, is, um, although you don't read this in textbooks and doctors don't tell you this, is that even though the words that we learn as kids, like mother, milk, sky, and so on, probably are processed in the key language areas of the brain, seems to be that the words we learn in our specialties, maybe in our careers, or maybe in our hobbies, that those get processed, because you learn them later on, they get processed elsewhere, uh, like a second language or something. And I found that Paul didn't have access to the small words, but he remembered all the big words. And that's how I used, I used that as an inroad. But if he had, for example, been a golfer, I think I would have invited a golfing friend over and maybe use, try their using golfing lingo or uh anything like that, I think you've got to be creative and try as many ways as possible to connect. You probably won't connect in exactly the same ways as before. But we're having, um, if anything, a closer relationship now than we ever had.
1: So you take the uniqueness of the person I mean and I think one of the problems is when we uh, as let's say as and I'm getting back to the social work kind, Uh, and professionals who work with families and and individuals who have had strokes, kind of like to generalize what everybody should be doing or should not be doing. And what you're really saying is look at the uniqueness of this person that you love and connect on that level because that's how they're going to connect to you. Yes, and because every brain is different and every life experience is
2: different and every relationship is different and everyone is unique. And uh, it's appreciating the uniqueness of the person and remembering that the person inside the head hasn't changed. That's the same person. they're just in a different tra- trajectory of their life, and it may be harder to communicate. Um, everybody has someone in their family who's had a stroke or something like that. Usually it's kids who don't know how to talk to their grandparent or you know, but this happens, and um, it's remembering that there is the same person in there who really wants to connect with you and thinking, can I find a fun, playful, loving, affectionate way to do this? And the answer is almost certainly yes.
1: Yes. And and that brings us to probably to the last question because we have a couple more minutes left, but at the end of your book, you talk about... Um, your lessons learned, and one of the lessons at the very end is living more in the present. I mean, we talk about that when we're not sick, when we're not ill, but you specifically related to living more in the present and, and you know, after uh, Paul's stroke.
2: Well, you know, this is something that I actually give talks on. This is something I've really always felt. Um, the, we don't the past is gone, we don't know what's going to happen in, in the future, our lives really are taking place in the present. And you can't enchant the world, but you can enchant yourself in these present moments. This was always true for me, and it gave me great solace. But it was not true for Paul. It became true after his stroke. And he is, he's much happier now than I've ever known him to be, because he lives more in the present. And we just unfold each day as a, a star-spangled miracle that we're here at all. And um, we enjoy it on that level. And I really think that that is the secret to happiness in
1: general. Well, uh, you two, me are an amazing couple. I mean, all of these, what, 40-plus years being together and going through, as you say... Different marriages, I, I really like that term, but uh, I want to tell uh, everybody, listeners, that you can, it's Diane Ackerman that, that we've been talking to this morning, and her new book is 100 Names for Love, a memoir, fantastic book, online, bookstores everywhere, and we can go, uh, you have a website, Diane, right? I do, and it's just www.dianeackerman.com. Good, and we left anything else, do we need to give...
2: Yeah, I, I don't think so. I just want to say what a, what a pleasure it is talking with you.
1: It was a pleasure talking to you, and I know you're in Ithaca, New York. You're not too far away. I'm in Albany right now. Nope, not too far, far away at all. Yeah. Thanks so much, and uh, we'll have to get you back on the show again. I have, I have a lot more questions, but anyway, have a great day, and uh, 100 Names for Love, a memoir, Diane Ackerman. <laughs> Bye for now. Bye-bye. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to Voice America. A World Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com, and you can listen to us every Wednesdays live from 10 to 11, but you can also download the show at the end of the day because we put it up on the website and archive it. You can go to voiceamerica.com, the Catherine Zox Show. Uh, Have a a great uh, week. I hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll see you next Wednesday.
0: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.